your lunch was uh, as good as ours at our table and your discussion and that you have some really good questions for us and uh, emphasis on the word questions if you could next week the topic is uh, undoing border imperialism what are the systemic barriers and uh, we hope to see you here next Thursday for that the sessions are listed on SACPA's website, sacpa.ca, and you can see the audio as well as some video there. A suggestion box is in the lobby for ideas, comments, interesting speakers or topics that you'd like covered. And if you'd like to uh, come to the microphone over here, introduce yourself, give us uh, a limit to one or two topical questions. And for that, I'm gonna invite the speaker back Mr. McIntyre, I'll turn it over to you. I'm Bev Mundell Atherstone. Thank you, Mr. McIntyre, for coming here and speaking to us. We, <coughs> we are very aware that we are on Blackfoot territory, and many of us are very concerned about our relationship, the colonial colonialization that continues to this day. I wanted you to clarify one point in your talk and ask you a question about another. The clarification would be in regard to the buffalo. You showed us the stacks of buffalo hides um, and the increased in, increase in population in the area due to the placer mining. Um, it's my understanding that this was government policy both on behalf of Canada and the US to shoot the buffalo from the train and in the US shoot the buffalo from the riverboats to get rid of the, the buffalo and the mainstay of indigenous people um, so that they would be more reliant upon government handouts. That's a clarification question. And my other question is, in your discussion of the of the contracts, the treaties, intention was number one. And it seems to me when the British came here, um, and, and I'm half English background, so I think I can say this with impunity, that the British came here to colonize and take the land away from, from the native peoples, and they did this also in Australia. So, since intention is number one on the contracts, it seems that the intention was tarnished from the start. And can't we tear up all these treaties because the intent was ultimately to steal the land? Thank you. Okay, I'm glad there are easy questions that you're throwing at me, Bell. <laughs> I, was, I was thinking they may be difficult ones that I could. Um, so. Thank you, Bev. Bev came over and talked to me, and um, and I I pointed out to her at the time uh, when she came and sat with me for a second. So I can't find where it is on. But the f the the first point is you know that uh, when I talked about the buffalo, I. If, the if it sounded like I was saying that uh, it just sort of happened and that they were feeding populations, uh, that was part of it. But there was indeed this idea that um, 
a couple of things happened. So in Treaty 6, when the train started coming across, John A. Macdonald's vision and recognition was that there would be his election, his re-election claim was that he would have a train that crossed right to the Rocky Mountains. Uh, and he was going to do that at any cost. And we have the letters of, of Alexander Morris that point out McDonald saying in no uncertain terms, this will happen. And uh, as the train moved forward, the buffalo were in the way. As the train moved forward, there were indigenous populations that were in the way. And two things were, were said. Uh, one, uh, people would go to on the trains as far as the train would go, and you could actually buy a ticket uh, to just shoot buffalo. Not harvest buffalo, but just shoot them. Uh, and there were stacks, and they there are stories of thousands of buffalo just laying, rotting on the plains. So there is that part. The other part that we see in the letters of Alexander Morris and MacDonald is there is this interesting time um, when individuals would say, um, uh, Morris sends a letter back and says, look, I've been speaking with them. They're willing to share it. They're willing to be peaceful. Uh, they're willing to share the land. They're willing to give us, and he says, they're willing to give us a right-of-way. That's what they're offering. The negotiations have happened. They're offering a right-of-way through their territory. And what McDonald says is, uh, get it seated or you're fired. And the next letter going back from Morris two days later is, guess what? They're willing to cede. Um, so there's this recognition uh, that now it was a different time, uh, but there was uh, an understanding of the British Empire's right to the territory. We talk about Manifest Destiny being an American understanding, the right that we will have uh, that all of the world belongs to the U.S. We talk about that as Manifest Destiny, but Manifest Destiny didn't start with the U.S. Uh, the British Empire had a very similar understanding of the world. Uh, the second is with regards to, and I hope that clarifies it, I didn't mean that this was the only reason. Uh, th there was that aspect too. The second is your, your comment on intent. Rather than saying that the intention, because you can have a bad intention and still write a contract, what happens is the way that what you're trying to look for is there wasn't a meeting of the minds, right? They, the indigenous populations did not think that they would, they saw themselves as sovereign nations. They saw themselves as entering into an agreement with another sovereign nation like the treaties and agreements they had had with the other pop nation, indigenous nations, for thousands of years. They saw no difference between this one and the newcomers. Uh, what, what I'm, so I'm Ojibwe, what the Ojibwe people call the fair-skinned people or the light-skinned people. We saw no difference in the contract that was going to happen. Um, the, the way that we teach this in law school is to say meeting of the minds is if I, if I have a black and a white cat and I say to you, I have a cat for sale for a dollar and you want the black cat but I'm only willing to sell the white cat, 
we've never, our minds have never met. We're talking about two totally different things. And so if I'm talking about sharing the land, uh, as the, uh, the last quote I showed, or if I'm talking about seeding and seeding, if I have seeding and seeding, there is no way that I can have a meeting of the minds in this room. So the Blackfoot were an oral traditional people. So if I say to you, today we are going to seed, which one am I talking about? Nobody knows, right? Uh, you have to look at it on paper before you even have a clue. And so there could not be. So in law, if we wanted to unravel the contract, we would say there could not have been a meeting of the minds. Uh, you can contract with a bad intention, though. You just have to tell the other side, by the way, I have a really bad intention of what I'm going to do here. Are you still willing to sign the paper? So, yes. Douglas Mitchell, as a Scots-born Canadian, I'm very pleased, Professor McIntyre, that uh, at, at least there's a considerable amount of Scots blood spread through the Aboriginal community, particularly in the Metis community. However, that's my question is really, you touched on it, but uh, haven't really got to that point yet. This whole question of language, you're talking about this word seed and what it means. My question to you is, the uh, Aboriginal people had their own language. How much of the negotiation was conducted or given to the Aboriginal people in their own language so that they might understand what the wording meant? So a, a couple. So I, I, I told you I was Ojibwe. My name is... Um, uh, uh, Anasisip is my Aboriginal name, means duck with many wings. Um, my other name, Douglas Mitchell, is Donald Gordon McIntyre. <laughs> so uh, my father was a Scot. Uh, and this idea of, so thank you for the question. The idea of language uh, is one that is in question and has been in question uh, when the British Empire went to Scotland when they went to Ireland, uh, when they went to India. Uh, the negotiations here, they actually have documents that say uh, what happened was the first, and the first choice of translator uh, couldn't understand what this meant, couldn't define it in Blackfoot, and said, I can't define it in Blackfoot. So what they did is they brought in another guy who just happened to be there who was a Cree translator. I know. <laughs> Let's all furl our eyebrows. So the second choice, the translator that came in to do the translation, because the person who the Blackfoot had selected to do the translation said, I can't translate this phrase. This is the seed phrase. Uh, now, I can't actually translate that into English for you guys today as a legal expert. Um, so he couldn't translate it into Blackfoot, and because of that, they brought in a Cree translator who did the translations for the Blackfoot. So great question. Uh, you guys are making this easy. I got I to tell you, I love the fact that 
Uh, it was 25, it was about 33 minutes that I talked and I'm like, there were so many other things I wanted to say. And you guys step up to the mic and say, can you address, yes I can. Thank you very much for asking. Uh, Ruth Alzinga, and I have a question from our table, and I have another one as well. Uh, what has been the role of the Supreme Court of Canada, and, and moving forward, what, what role do you see them having in some of these issues? Okay, that's a really simple three-word answer. No, it's... Um, so, thank you, Ruth. Uh, a couple of things. What happens is uh, the Supreme Court is actually their role, their job in Canada is to be the rational thought because the federal government is actually a party into the negotiation. Uh, so over the course of time, what they have done is actually define. And as lawyers have huge books of what the Supreme Court has defined. Now the Supreme Court has spent uh, a lot of their time uh, telling the federal and provincial governments what they can't do, uh, but also what they can do, uh, and how they have to look at the world. Now, they are not the makers of law. They are the interpreters of law. So they have done things like, say, um, this is what indigenous title looks like. This is what treaty title looks like. This is what a duty to consult looks like. Uh, and one of the most important ones that the Supreme Court ever said is, we're all in this together. Nobody's going anywhere, so, and this is a paraphrase of Beverly McLaughlin, so thank God nobody's recording this now because uh, my law professors would come back and shoot me for how badly I'm going. Oh, no. Uh, is this still going out? People are still, so I apologize for how I'm going to misquote Beverly McLaughlin, uh, but uh, what was said by the Supreme Court was that we are all in this together and we have to figure out how to do it because of the fact that you have Scott and Ojibwe, where do, you, where do I go if I'm not here? This is my home. Uh, and the Supreme Court recognized that for all Canadians, this is our home and we have to figure out how to reconcile the story that we have to tell. It is our story to tell. For that, now my other question has to do with the treaty coin. I was intrigued with that. Never have seen one before. I would be curious to know um, what it was, was it just part of uh, when the treaty was signed, these were handed out? What, how far did they go and what were they used for other than a, a commemorative piece? I just need some explanation. So it, it was just a commemorative piece, um, and so people would be giving them if they were at the signing. Uh, now, it became confusing, uh, and in my class what I do is the, the box that I have with a bunch of treaty coins, uh, I show those, and then I also have a bunch, because we talk about the fact that they have, aside from to collectors, they have no value. So the treaty coin has no value from a Western uh, Marxist, mercantile sense. Uh, the, my box of coins also has a bag of pennies. Because in Canada, our pennies are now being... So it's like, well, these ones actually say they have a value, but the government of Canada has said they have no value. 
And the question becomes, what, what is the actual meaning of coin? It is, it is a fascinating, uh, in my mind, uh, everyone's like, uh, look, we're scared of your mind now. We don't want to go any further into it. But to me, the idea of how coin, what coin represents is fascinating. The last point I'd like to make is the other piece in my coins is actually the other place coins would be used was you could buy a $1 and $3 coin in the territories uh, for, through the gold rush uh, for brothels. So you could buy them for a day. You could have a day pass at a brothel for $3 at a... Uh, and so I have those three coins that I sit, and then I say to my class, you guys make sense of it because I can't. So great question. Avatanus, beneficiary of Treaty 7. I sleep in Picture Butte. I live everywhere I go. Um, going back to the coin, the Aboriginal person has a community behind him. The non-Aboriginal person has the rising sun, which does not express a community. Does this, from the British Empire, that the sun would never set, as it, would it be like a symbol of power that you can't get away from it? They're always there. They're not like Napi, but almost the Almighty, and then they have the Queen on the other side. Why did this rising sun appear on the coin when it does not represent a community that negotiate with nation to nation. So since we're doing, thank you, um, Avadonis? Everett. Everett. Everett yeah. What I want to do, uh, I did it the wrong way. I'm actually going to go back and actually just put, for those of you who are um, here, I'm going to put the coin images back up. Uh, for those of you watching, uh, if you go Treaty Coin, Government of Canada, uh, you can find it on the website somewhere. Um, Trying to figure out this. Uh so, with regards to the question, um, my sense, and again, this is how I interpret the coin. So, no one, I've never read anywhere where it's interpreted that way. I'm sure it's not an original interpretation, but I interpret it very similar to how Everett uh, described it. Uh, that we have the community on the one side. For the British, the story they were wanting to tell was simply that the sun never sets on the British Empire and we have land. We are acquiring land. So you have blank land, open land, land that is open to possibilities, open to settlement, open to uh, uh, use, uh, all of those ideas that John Locke had introduced to the British population were suddenly right there for us to look at. Um, 
The last point I would like to make about this coin is one, it was minted in Britain. Uh, and I, I sort of commented on the fact that I didn't know where this European gentleman was from. No one can also figure out where the indigenous person is from because this doesn't look like any indigenous regalia I've ever seen. Uh, this is a complete fabrication of someone who was probably never in the territories. So this is, a, this is Orientalism. This is someone who was never in the territories, who never traveled to Canada, who never met anyone who was negotiating a treaty with an indigenous population, and probably never met an indigenous person, had probably read books, and looked at pictures by uh, artists like Kane, uh, who were painting pictures based on what he had seen. Uh, but both of these are imaginary figures talking about an imaginary place that is about to be created called Canada. on for your uh, presentation today. Lo lots of interesting details. My name is Mary Shillington. Uh, we had a, a discussion at the table uh, around Métis people and if you're fourth or fifth or sixth generation from the original conception of Métis, are you still Métis? So that was one question. How far down does it go do you call yourself Métis? And the, my question is also um, <coughs> around the treaties. Uh, presently, what would people uh, from First Nations want to do about treaties? W do they want to hang on to them? Are they precious to them still, have some security, or would they like to throw them out and renegotiate? I want to get the questions right, so I'm writing them down each time. Um, so the first question was, um, with regards to the Métis, how far does it go? Uh, and there are a number of answers to that. So the Métis are actually a nation of their own. They're a nation unto themselves. Um, the, some Métis that I know like to describe themselves as the first nation of Canada because we had the indigenous populations of these territories, uh, but Canada was actually made, uh, and the, the, the Métis population came about when the European settlers came uh, and started uh, creating family and clan systems between themselves uh, and the indigenous populations. I think I got that right. Uh, now, how far you hold on to that Métis uh, is a very individual, uh, I would believe. Um, uh, as, a, as a status Indian, the last thing I want to do is stand, particularly when I'm being recorded, uh, and say, this is when Métis have to say they stop. Uh, now, the Supreme Court of Canada did, however, say this is how we will define Métis. Uh, and it was the Pauli decision. And in the Pauli decision, what they said was, um, if you are connected to a historic Métis community, uh, if you self-identify, uh, and if you are recognized by that community as Métis, then you are Métis, uh, which is a much 
different construction than for Indian, uh, which is defined by Section 6 of the Indian Act. Uh, and it actually does, though in Canada we don't talk about blood quantum, uh, it does say uh, you have this long to still be Indian. Though Section 6, uh, another great topic that I can confuse the heck out of all of you trying to define just that one section. We'll uh, take the last question here and I'll reserve it. Oh, right, sorry, there was one more very quickly. Um, from my perspective, what happens is the treaties are actually uh, entrenched in the Constitution of Canada. They are the supreme law of the land. Now, from as an indigenous man, uh, my understanding is that the treaties are alive and that the treaties are supposed to be continually um, uh, revived, regenerated, like the bundle where you open it up every year. So we should be opening them up and telling the story of today, which means that the $5 that I get on treaty day every year uh, doesn't make sense because when that was signed with $5, I could buy five acres of land. Uh, so $5 is a very different number in those two contexts. Thank you. Okay, we'll take the last question, but I've reserved the right exemption to myself for one more because I'm the moderator and I can do that. So, last uh, question. Thank you, here. Mr. Chair. My name's a very quick one. Uh, my name is Joseph Natuk. I wanted to uh, just get a bit of an opinion from you regarding the relationships within the uh, First Nations, like the Blackfoot, the Cree, the Sioux, or not the Cree, but the, the, the Sioux, you know, like from Saskatchewan, these parts of the country, and, and your national organization as well. Just a brief comment. Thank you. Uh, oh, it was a short question. Good. Um, so my, my sense is I, I, twofold. One, uh, I think the AFN, uh, the Assembly of First Nations, is an essential organization because what it does is it provides a voice. Uh, it provides a voice across the country. It does not provide the voice for every indigenous individual. Uh, but in order to be heard at a national, Canadian national level, you have to have an organization that can speak that loud. I, as an individual, can speak very loud. So if the pipes were going to continue, I have the ability to drown out the pipes uh, because I can speak in the big house. I can speak very loud. Uh, however, I can't speak loud enough to be heard across the country. That becomes essential. Uh, each individual First Nation person has an opinion. The communities themselves have opinions, but varying opinions within the communities. Uh, and then the national organization, which attempts to speak for a majority of, not even all of the First Nations, but a majority of the First Nations, uh, has a very difficult job. Uh, First Nation chief councils uh, and leadership in whatever form they have have very difficult jobs because, like everywhere, uh, the town of Lethbridge, what happens is trying to make everybody happy is impossible. Uh, and th it is the same that communities, there is infighting within the communities. Um, but that's what makes a community strong is the ability to overcome 
the difference of opinion. Uh, and it's what makes communities like uh, Lethbridge and its connection with the surrounding indigenous communities. Uh, coming to an, an understanding where we all get along, like the Supreme Court of Canada said, allows us to say uh, we are a better and stronger community because of our divergence. My, uh, my question is, uh, it's a feeling that the Trans-Pacific Partnership or the global trade agreements that are being negotiated now are a bit of a, a, bit of a corporate takeover of things that were taken over 100 years ago in the, uh, in the uh, nation's sense. And is that even possible that it is another deceptive practice that is intending to capture the resources of all the people in this room yet again, um, as opposed to just capturing the resources of so-called savages a hundred years ago or more? And can the natives and their sovereignty uh, protect us a little bit from that or, or stand up for that capture on our behalf? Yes. <laughs> no, no. <I> mean, it's <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so is it possible that this is another construction? Um, Absolutely, it's possible. Whether or not it is, I'm not in a position to actually provide a full opinion of it. Um, were I to suggest, is there a legal way to be making that happen? Um, what I would suggest is you could probably, if you wanted, uh, put a mirror to the old relationship of indigenous populations, indigenous to the territory, like Canadians are indigenous to this territory, uh, and people coming in with a different set of laws, a more global set of laws, like what we used to call international law, but what we now have a whole different construction. Um, and you could see great parallels between the past and what we're looking at right now. Uh, the one thing that is potentially standing in the way, but there, it involves a lot of opening of doors and opening of, of relationships, is to say that, you know what, maybe the title that we as Canadians had to all of this should be called into question to some places. Because if there is an underlying title, uh, which I believe there is, uh, whether it was ceded or not, that treaty and underlying title that we have, what that title does is demand a new conversation with the trans-Pacific and the transnationals. Uh, because what they've done is figure out this new law really, really well. Uh, and what we need to do is work uh, in a way to figure out how to act as stewards. So to go back to those original ideas of, of the treaty, the idea of treaty, how do we make peace that is give and take uh, and nation to nation, the way that the buffalo recognized that they would work with us uh, as humans uh, to sustain, provided that we took care of them. So if we're willing to take care of Canada, those same sort of relationships can open up one more time. I think and I hope 
Uh, and with that, back home, I hope that answers the question. Uh, with that, uh, so I'm Ojibwe, Anishinaabe Moen. What we say is uh, ch, chi means big, uh, miigwech means thank you. Uh, so chi miigwech is big thank yous to all of you. Chi miigwech.